And um, but let's begin with um, with a prayer. And I'm going to read this one from John Chrysostom before I pray. This is titled, um, Lord, decorate our homes with your goodness. Lord, we want to invite you to our homes, so we decorate them with giving to the needy, with prayers, with requests, and with vigils that focus unceasingly on the needs of others. These are the decorations of Christ the King. We are not ashamed, then, of having a humble house if it has this kind of furniture. But the decorations that come from unstoppable greed are the enemy of Christ. May those of us who are rich not pride ourselves on having an expensive house. Rather, let us hide our faces, turn away from greed, and seek the other kind of decoration. In so doing, let us receive in th this life on earth and there enjoy the eternal home. By the grace and love you have for us in Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and might, world without end. Amen. Father in heaven, we do indeed pray that you would so let your kingdom come in our hearts that we might be a people who are rich in good deeds and, um, and rich in love for one another, rich in faith toward you. Um, but when it comes to pride and vanity, may we uh, be utterly destitute, Lord. Father, we pray that we would always, for all our days, seek first your kingdom and its righteousness. And may we do that first in this place where you've planted us and called us, and also within the uh, community in which you've, um, you've sent us. And uh, may we also be then supportive of others, Lord, as they go out and as they spread the gospel of grace. May we be a people who are ever about your kingdom, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I, as I said, I want to talk a bit about the kingdom of God as a theme. And um, uh, I want to uh, begin by just charting out our, our upcoming uh, several weeks as we go through the Gospel of Luke. I've given you a little... Uh, preview of my thoughts and my plans. One thing that you'll notice is that we're going to pick up the pace um, uh, rather a good bit. <laughs> we're going to pick up the pace as we work through Luke over the next uh, 10 or so weeks uh, into December, covering about a chapter each week. Um, and that's uh, one of the challenges with Luke is not only are there many chapters, but the chapters are rather lengthy. You know, we're talking in many cases uh, 50, 60, um, verses and so um, but uh, uh, don't worry the sermons will not go on for two hours um, I think that what you'll see is that we can cover these chunks um, rather uh, quickly uh, because one is there's um, what you might call a, uh, a wonderful redundancy in scripture you know in, in any kind of engineering system engineers will build in redundancy um, meaning if uh, you have one pump uh, that performs a particular task, you have another pump that can do the same thing so that if one breaks, you have a redundant pump that can take over and do what that one broken pump no longer can do. Um, in the same way, uh, in Scripture, uh, Scripture is redundant in the, se in the sense that uh, those things that are uh, of crucial importance, those insights that are clear and, and, and um, central to our life together are insights that we find in many, many, many places. And um, it won't be, uh, it'll, it'll certainly prove true as we go through Luke's gospel, as we'll revisit and emphasize the same themes with respect to the kingdom over and over again. But you will notice then as you look at these um, next uh, 10, or 10 to 12 weeks, as we go from Luke 11 through Luke 19, 
that each of these um, passages in some respect deals with the theme of the kingdom of, of God. Um, and uh, so I, I want to take some time then to, uh, tonight to reflect on this idea, on this theme as we prepare for that and we, we think about um, what the kingdom is and, and um, how the answer to that question relates to our life here and now. And the way I want to reflect on that is actually just by going back and looking at a number of texts that we've already seen, both in Luke's gospel and in uh, Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, um, and, to, and uh, some other texts as well, and to draw on these texts and to, and to seek together to understand um, what the kingdom is and, um, what, uh, um, and how we should live in light of uh, the coming of the kingdom, both uh, its presence now and its final uh, fulfillment. But let me begin then by asking this question, um, just for your, your thoughts and, and your, your response and your life as you've uh, been taught on the kingdom of God or you've read about the kingdom of God, what are some of the ideas that come to mind? What are the, some of the things that you've learned or, or that you're not quite sure about, questions you have? Anything that comes to your mind when you hear someone refer to the kingdom of God, what comes to mind? Nothing. No. Okay, the universal church. And, and, and uh, what, what is the universal church, Becca? Every believer in every place. Yeah, good, good. What else? What else comes to mind when you think about the kingdom in the Bible? Mitchell. Sure, yeah, so seeing God's will accomplished as an expression of his reign and his, his rule and, and, um, and our submission to that reign and rule, seeking his, his will when we say thy kingdom come. What else? the parables and that's what will the the, uh, major bulk of the content in these chapters upcoming in Luke are going to be parables not not entirely not all but a a good uh, significant portion of it will concern uh, the kingdom as as Jesus explains what it is and uh, what we should expect with regard to it through parabolic teaching well um, Christopher Morgan in an essay at the Gospel Coalition defines the kingdom of God this way The kingdom of God is the rule of God over his people in his creation, established through his Messiah in the new covenant, which is now present in the world, though it is awaiting its fulfillment in the second coming of Christ. Let me repeat that. The kingdom of God is the rule of God over his people in his creation, established through his Messiah in the new covenant, which is now present in the world, though it is awaiting its fulfillment in the second coming of Christ. So what we have there is we you know, break down this idea of the kingdom of God. One, we have this idea of rule. This is God's rule over the whole created order, over everything that God has made. It's his rule. There's an establishment of that rule, and that rule is established through Messiah, through the Christ. It's established in the context of a covenant, uh, but not in the context of the old covenant. It's established in the context of the new covenant, which he has already inaugurated, and uh, we'll come to that, of course, as we come to um, uh, the institution of the Last Supper, especially making it quite clear. But he's already inaugurated this new covenant. And so we see that the kingdom is now present, as, as Morgan explains, in the world. It, it, it really is present. But if you 
go out into the world uh, and, and talk to any person on the street, any stranger, uh, you're likely to scratch your head and say, it really doesn't seem that present in our lives, right? There's a lot of people who don't live their lives in submission to the kingdom. There are many people who, um, who would reject its coming. Um, there are many people who s propose alternative kingdoms. Um, and so there's a sense in which, though it is present, um, it's really not, we're not seeing it as fully as we expect to based on what scripture tells us of the coming of the kingdom. And so we, set, we recognize that it awaits its fulfillment in the second coming of Christ. Let me give you a bit fuller, um, a bit more of a detailed definition or description of the kingdom of God. This also comes from uh, the Gospel Coalition site. It's in their uh, confessional statement. Um, it says, we believe that those who have been saved by the grace of God through union with Christ by faith and through regeneration by the Holy Spirit enter the kingdom of God and delight in the blessings of the new covenant. The forgiveness of sins, the inward transformation that awakens a desire to glorify, trust, and obey God, and the prospect of the glory yet to be revealed. Good works constitute indispensable evidence of saving grace. Living as salt in a world that is decaying and light in a world that is dark, believers should neither withdraw into seclusion from the world nor become indistinguishable from it. Rather, we are to do good to the city, for all the glory and honor of the nations is to be offered up to the living God, recognizing whose created order this is. And because we are citizens of God's kingdom, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Especially to power that plunders Satan's dark kingdom and regenerates and renovates through repentance and faith the lives of individuals rescued from that kingdom. If therefore inevitably, it therefore inevitably establishes a new community of human life together under God. It's a rather lengthy description then of the kingdom of God, but there are some crucial elements there that I think we're going to see tonight. Um, one is that the, the inauguration of the kingdom, it, there, there's an individual and personal sense to it. And uh, just in case uh, for anyone who might listen to this in a recording, uh, as, it, as it probably cut out, uh, you can find what I just read at the Gospel Coalition in their confessional statement on the kingdom of God. But in any case, the, you know, the, these crucial aspects of that statement is that it, there's a, an initial inauguration of the kingdom individually and personally as people receive the word by faith. And there is that already not yet character that uh, was in Christopher Morgan's definition that we see here as well. And uh, I think that we've seen up to uh, this point to some extent in Luke and we'll more fully see as, um, as Jesus unfolds the idea of the kingdom of, of God. Um, and we see that it has ramifications for our life today and how we live, how we submit our lives to the rule and reign of uh, God our Father. Um, that we, uh, we, we live in a way where, uh, I like how they, how they characterized it, um, that we are, we're not like lamps under a basket. We are letting our light shine in the world in which we live. That's part of being uh, a citizen in the kingdom of God. But as we let our light shine, we are not indistinguishable from the world. 
It's a recognizable reality in our lives that we are members of the kingdom. Um, it's not, so we don't withdraw from society, but we also don't live entirely like the rest of society. And that way, our light shines and we remain salty, so to say. So these are important aspects of the kingdom. Well, let's, let's go back and just do some review. There are 33 references in Luke's gospel to the kingdom of God. You'll find the first one in, in Luke 4, 43. Here I'm looking specifically, not conceptual uh, references where the, the, the idea is clearly at play, but the actual words, kingdom of God, uh, where we find them. And um, we really find it at the um, outset of Jesus' ministry, as it's recorded there in, in the Gospel of Luke in 4.43. I'll pick up in verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Let me ask you then, in that very first instance, what do we see about the kingdom of God just from that, that from verse 43? Um, and, and the follow-up then would be, what do you think uh, a, a regular Israelite there in Capernaum would have uh, thought this to mean? Uh, if you were there hearing that, what are you going to be thinking as you hear him speak about the kingdom of God? But the first question, what do we see from this text, particularly in verse 43, about the kingdom of God? What can we discern about it, infer about it? It's good news. It's associated with the gospel, preaching good news, or, or, or that the word is to uh, quite literally evangelize. I must, I must evangelize about the kingdom is one way you could render that. I must go out preaching the gospel, proclaiming it. And here, I think the in the ancient context, the imagery is of um, when when a when a, a nation might have won a battle, an army might have won a battle. They could send a runner who would go and proclaim the good news of the victory throughout the towns of uh, the neighboring towns and so on and so forth. Or when a new uh, emperor or new king is, is crowned, someone might come and proclaim, announce uh, the reign of this new emperor. And this would be an example of evangelizing, uh, sharing some kind of message. And that language then is, is, is appropriated to describe um, the preaching of the gospel. And it's, it is an appropriate way to speak about preaching the gospel because we're proclaiming that Christ is king. We're proclaiming that he is Lord. This is the good news of the kingdom. Is there anything, what else do you see about the kingdom uh, from this verse? What is Jesus' um, uh, what is his uh, sensibility? What's his purpose? What's his, what, what was, for what was he sent? Yeah, there's a so what you see is this initial sense of uh, this desire in Capernaum to kind of keep him there for themselves, if you will, and he resists that and instead has this impulse to go out proclaiming to many many cities. We're going to see that that continues to go further that 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 impulse that he continues to look even further beyond uh, not just Galilean cities but uh, further and further out. So. Good. Um, yeah, and so we have this initial introduction, if you will, in Luke of, of the gospel of the kingdom. And we could look at other texts. We won't for the sake of time, but there are other, many other places in this gospel where we see reference made to pre preaching the good news of the kingdom. 
It's ultimately a task that Jesus will delegate as well to his disciples, sending them out to proclaim that same good news. Uh, but as we, we um, go on, we come back to the Sermon on the Plain in chapter 6, verse 20. Let's see what Jesus says here. Here he, uh, we remember the Beatitudes, the beginning of the outset of the Sermon on the Plain. And we read in verse 20, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. I'll go on to say, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Well, the focus, of course, is verse 20 there, but I wanted to read it all in the context. What, what stands out to you with regard to the kingdom as you reflect on what Jesus says in this beatitude? Yeah. In fact, not, uh, you, could, you could go further than saying not just for the rich and powerful. Uh, it, there's a primary, a primary audience he addresses that th this is for you. And, of course, we know he's not excluding the rich. We, we're, we see people who are like centurions who come to faith and, and, and are incorporated into the kingdom. But there's primarily a poverty of spirit that is true of every, every person who gains entrance into the kingdom. You see that much more clearly in Matthew's beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew will say. Uh, so, but yes, it's, it's, uh, it's a proclamation that is good news, a good news of blessedness, that you, you, are, you do exist in this state of happiness, this state of blessedness, uh, because the kingdom is presently yours. Uh, you who are poor, the kingdom is yours. What else do you see as we think about the context, though? As you think about the other Beatitudes that come, that, um, that uh, inform our thoughts on this particular first Beatitude, what else do we see about the kingdom? You see it's already not yet character? We, we, we certainly do. Is, I mean, right from the start, when he says, blessed are you who are poor, there's a present reality, you're poor. And the kingdom is yours. And there's a paradox there. There's a dissonance there. And then we start to see the emphasis on now and future in the, in the subsequent Beatitudes. Those who hunger now, you will be satisfied. And it, it's good to reflect on how Matthew um, gives more detail. Uh, blessed are you, th those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? There's a spiritual reality to what Jesus is saying. Uh, but there's also, there's certainly a physical reality to it too. That many, many of the people um, to whom he's speaking and, and throughout all of history, many Christians have suffered want in various ways. Sorrow, weep now, you will laugh. Um, uh, you're hated now, but your reward is great in heaven, right? So there's not only a now and then character, but there's a here and there character, okay? So we're, we're speaking about Luke's predominantly going to use the language of kingdom of God. Matthew primarily will use the language of kingdom of heaven. We're speaking about the same thing. Matthew and Luke are speaking about the same thing. But Matthew puts an emphasis on the heavenly character of that kingdom because of, uh, 
as he creates a contrast between that, that which is heavenly and that which is earthly. And there, we live in a space where um, the fullness and, and, the, and the clear clarity of that kingdom is not seen in the earthly realm. It is present in heaven. And so there's, a, there's both a now and then and a here and there kind of reality to it. The kingdom is here, but it's in its fullness there. The kingdom is now, but it will come in its fullness then. You can see that from the uh, Beatitudes, to be sure. Um, this is, you could say that, in a sense, what Luke is giving is a, is a fuller sense of the preaching of the kingdom. Jesus goes out and says, I must preach the gospel of the kingdom. Well, now we get to a little bit of that gospel of the kingdom. What, what kind of preaching content um, we would imagine Jesus uh, coming out of his mouth. So here it's, a, it's in the form of Beatitudes and what follows in the Sermon on the Plain. We'll turn over then to chapter 7, verse 28, and I'll remind you of um, this context then is um, we have a, uh, a little bit of discussion concerning John the Baptist and how some rejected him and some responded to him. And Jesus has just said, well, here in 28, he's, gonna, uh, he's, he's just quoted from uh, the Old Testament. Um, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And we know that um, um, uh, John is, is understood as the one who fulfills Malachi 3.1 as well as... Uh, Isaiah, um, off the top of my head, I believe it's Isaiah 42, uh, 1 through 4, roughly, or, or so thereabouts. But um, he's the fulfillment of this expected um, messenger who will come before the Christ. And now Jesus is going to speak about his greatness. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Uh, so we have two, uh, I remind you what I s said then when we went through that. We have two kind of... Um, planes on which we're evaluating greatness, right? There's greatness on earth, greatness among those who are born of women, and John's the greatest, the greatest in that plane. But the kingdom of God has an entirely different category of greatness, and an illustration I used at that time when we preached this text was, um, uh, you think of military greatness, uh, the, the, the highest ranking military officer in the United States military is, is pretty great in terms of power. And yet, he will always be subordinate to the elected leadership of, our, of our, the executive branch, of the, um, the president and the secretary of defense and so on. There's just an entirely different plane of evaluating personal greatness uh, in our particular system. And so, too, in God's created order, there's a different uh, scale, different uh, way of categorizing greatness in the kingdom of heaven versus here on earth. Um, what, essentially what you know, uh, Jesus is saying, he's not casting some kind of aspersion on John. Rather, he's speaking about the, the positive quality of, of uh, the kingdom and the positive reality of being a, a citizen of that kingdom is what everyone should desire, everyone should seek. Uh, true greatness comes through um, uh, membership, you might say, in his, in his kingdom. Um, it does kind of set the stage, if you will, for, a, for the way that we evaluate things um, in our own lives. And we're going to see that really unfold clearly in the, in the parables as we progress through, um, through Luke's gospel. We're going to see that Jesus is, is going to constantly speak out against things like uh, worldly wealth, not 
in and of itself, but as something that might draw you away from Christ, draw you away from trust. And so we're going to see several different examples whereby people either use their wealth well or they use it quite poorly, both in parables and in actual lived reality. Well, how does, how does one approach these realities um, uh, uh, in a way that's, in, that's um, informed by what we know of the kingdom? By recognizing that there's something qualitatively different about greatness in the kingdom of God. And, and uh, when you think about then worldly wealth, it has all this value here in, on earth, has zero value whatsoever in heaven, right? Well, if, that, if you know that to be true, just like human uh, greatness and, and pride and, and, and fame and all that, if you know that what's worth a lot here is worth nothing there, you're going to approach what you have here and now and what is offered to you here and now in a rather different way. So um, what Jesus says there in, in, in Luke 7 begins to set the stage for understanding those evaluations. Well, we move over to chapter 8 then, and we see that Jesus um, uh, goes again proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, um, the good news of the kingdom there in verse 1. And then um, we see again content of that proclamation in the parables. It tells the parable of the sower, which um, maybe it's just so familiar to us that we just think, well, we, we know what it means. It's qu quite clear what it means. He's interpreted it. It's familiar to us. But uh, try to sympathize with the original hearers. Here's this guy. He stands up, and he tells you about a man going out and sowing seed. And ask yourself, in that context, would you have any idea what he's talking about? Besides a man going out and sowing seed. Be, okay, interesting. I'm not sure why you told me this. Of course, then he's going to interpret it for his disciples. What I want to draw your attention to in Luke chapter 8 it's how he interprets it, uh, how he introduces that interpretation, I should say, in verse, uh, verse 10. Uh, going back to verse 9, And when he, the disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables. So seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. What you have is that this idea that the parables are introducing secrets about the kingdom things that are hidden from the masses but revealed to God or to, to Christ's inner circle, to his disciples, and to us, if you know, we have ears to hear, these things are revealed to us. And so we have insight into the kingdom that's not broadly available, not widely available. Um, but it also gives us the you know, insight about this parable specifically. This parable concerns the kingdom. Now when you reflect on the parable of the sower, what does it tell you about the kingdom? If you think about this man goes to sow, the seed falls on these different soils. All the soils have some different characters. Uh, some of, the, some of the, the first soil, uh, the birds come and snatch it away. The next one, you've got the scorching heat, withers it away. The next one, the thorns choke it out. But then there's good soil, and the seed grows up and is very fruitful. What, uh, and you recall Jesus' interpretation. What is this telling us about the kingdom itself? What does the seed represent in the parable? The word of God, the word preached, God's word proclaimed. What, uh, what do the soils represent? The hearts of, of, of people who hear, people who hear that word preached. And uh, then you have all these different ways in which people may hear 
and not receive or not understand or, or receive it initially but not hold fast or receive it but uh, not prove fruitful or receive it and prove quite fruitful. And here we have then a picture of the coming of the kingdom, the progress of the kingdom. And how does it grow? How does it progress? How does it come? Through the word preached? What, Laurie, what is that? Yes, absolutely. Through the Holy Spirit, causing the word to take root in the hearts of people who hear it so that they believe with faith. They're born again. They're regenerated. They believe. They, um, and they prove fruitful. They, they, they produce good works. I think that's an important aspect of, a uh, uh, really important and crucial thing to see when we think about the kingdom. Um, because, again, so put yourself in the context of a first century uh, Jew in, in, um, in that time under the Roman occupation, the Roman rule. You hear kingdom. You, you know, if you, let's say you, wanted to, you were like an interviewer. You, you, you were going around videotaping people uh, off the cuff. What's the word on the street? Just randomly talking to people. Uh, what, what do you think of when you hear the kingdom of God? What do you think they're going to say, average first century Jew? Kingdom of Israel, absolutely. How's it going to come? Yes, Messiah is going to come. So they're right on one part. Messiah is going to come and destroy the Romans. Messiah is going to come and, and, um, and lead a revolution and lead a, um, like David, right? Although, not like certain parts of David's life, but the conquering parts of David's life. So that's the expectation. And um, Jesus is showing a different picture in this parable, one that is veiled from the masses and available to some, but not to all. But we flip ahead to um, chapter 9. We're skipping some references, um, which um, I think are a bit, uh, we, we would just be rehashing old ground. But in chapter 9, um, Recall that uh, uh, Jesus has foretold his death. Peter has confessed that he's the Christ, which is a way of saying, um, you're the king. You're the, you're the king we've been waiting for. You're the son of David. And uh, then he foretells his death. They don't quite get it. And he tells them they must take up their cross and follow him. And so there in verse 27 then, after telling them to take up their cross and follow him, I'll, t I'll pick up actually in, in verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What, uh, first of all, let me just ask, what, what, is, what are those, the, those two verses, what do they tell us about the kingdom? What, what, is, uh, what event is the climactic coming of the kingdom related to? His return, his coming in glory and power with the holy angels. Does everybody get to participate in that, according to what he's saying? Who doesn't get to participate? Those who are ashamed of his words. Of him, them, he will be ashamed at his coming. Now, in the context, what's he telling them? He's telling them you must... If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. And he's showing them that the way of, uh, uh, of the kingdom here and now is a way of suffering and a way of service. There is a glorious and powerful coming that is yet future. 
But right now, presently, it's a way of service and sacrifice and suffering and endurance, taking up your cross daily, following him. That's the nature of following the one who is the king of this great kingdom. And then he says this enigmatic statement, some of you who are standing here won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God. Now, I argued, if you, if you recall, when we went through that text, that the fulfillment of that, the, the primary fulfillment of that is in what comes right, right after this passage, the transfiguration. When they see Jesus, when Peter, James, and John see him transfigured in, in the glory, in a glorious way, they're seeing the kingdom of God and power. They're seeing, they're not just hearing about it, they're, they're truly witnessing the kingdom of God in a sense. And the basis the argu for my argument, the reason why I suggested that was because uh, a great many of the, the a, a great deal of the language that's in that transfiguration text in Luke is, um, seems to be drawn from something Peter himself wrote in Second Peter chapter one when he wrote about this very event of the transfiguration. He wrote about it in terms of majesty. He wrote about it in terms of the kingdom. He wrote about it in ter you know, terms of making known the coming and the, uh, of the kingdom. Um, in any way, the, 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 the prevalence of language is similar between those two texts seems to suggest that what Peter had in mind there in the transfiguration was the revelation of, God, of Christ's kingdom. And he saw it. He was an eyewitness to it, he's saying in Second Peter 1. And, um, and then Luke is using that same language here to, uh, to articulate this, this event. I think that's the fulfillment there, and then that kind of makes sense of, of it. Um, uh, others will take it in slightly different ways, um, and that's okay. I think um, it's an area where one can agree to disagree, but uh, certainly what he's not saying is that, uh, you know, maybe the Apostle John is still alive somewhere roaming around on the Isle of Patmos or something. Uh, that's, not the, that's not the idea. The idea is that they were going to have, they're going to have a vision uh, of the kingdom in some respect, and what they discover in that vision is that the kingdom, that, that, that Jesus is the one who embodies the kingdom. And it comes with him. And, and the glory of that kingdom comes with him when he comes in glory. Um, now, in nine, at the end of chapter 9, in verse 60 uh, and 62, we, we see the series of, of men who come to Jesus. They want to follow him, or he calls them to follow him. And in the second two instances, we see references to the kingdom of God. The first one, we have a man who wants to bury his dead father before he follows Jesus. Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The idea of starting to work and then, and then kind of turning around and, 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 and going back his, his, his way. Um, uh, you know, what, one of the things I stated there was that the, these two statements are, I mean, the, 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 the men seem to be making very reasonable requests from our perspective. Let me bury my dad. Let me say goodbye to my folks. Seems like a reasonable request uh, before you go off on a, a, a long um, tour of service, if you will. But, um, but Jesus is able to, you know, there's nothing that he cannot ask of us, nothing he cannot call us to do. And um, he is calling them in this con context to uh, put everything that they own, everything they have, every relationship, 
every possession, leave it behind in order to follow him. Now, if that's the call that one receives, that's the call that you receive, and that's what you follow. Um, and these, um, uh, it's a bit open-ended, you know, how these people respond to it, but um, it seems that they don't, um, you know, that they're not quite ready to jump in fully and follow him. But I wanted to, what I want to get at here is that there's this idea introduced of fitness for the kingdom, being um, fit for the kingdom of God. Um, uh, in the, at, the, at the very end of here. In the next passage, then, where Jesus sends out the, 20, the 72, he does show some who he's prepared for the kingdom and who he's made fit for the kingdom. Um, I don't want to dwell on this too long. We'll, we'll look a little bit briefly before we finish when we, we look at some texts in First and Second Thessalonians. Um, let me just say this, that uh, we don't make ourselves fit for the kingdom, and it's not an intrinsic thing, as we've, we've heard and we've seen as we've gone through uh, the Thessalonian correspondence. It's something that Jesus does within us, and yet there is a qualitative evidence that is produced within us in the making of us fit. We, we, we heard that in the, in the description of the, of the kingdom of God from that confessional statement uh, that, the, that the God's work in our hearts produces manifest evidences. Um, that we have been um, born again, that we have been brought into the kingdom, that we have inherited eternal life. We can see that in the good works that God produces in our hearts, the faith and the love that endures uh, as we demonstrate that in, in demonstrable ways. In these in two instances, these men were called to, uh, to, to make um, some great, uh, great decisions, to, to leave a great deal behind, um, but we're to, we're to understand that the kingdom's worth it, if you will. Two more references then in Luke, and then we'll, um, uh, we see the kingdom of God has come near with the coming of Christ in his first advent. In chapter 10, in verse 9 and 11, uh, when Jesus sends out the 72, he sends them to preach, among other things, that the kingdom of God has come near. And he, he tells them that if even though they're rejected by people along the way, in verse 11, nevertheless know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. It won't always seem like the kingdom of God has really come, especially in the midst of rejection. But Jesus assures them it really has come near. It really is present. And you're to proclaim that, and you're to believe that. Uh, and that's uh, certainly true for us as well as we think about the world in which we live. And uh, then finally, we pray along those lines, as we've seen in recent weeks, that we pray, let your kingdom come. So we're going to then, as I've said, in the, in the weeks to come, we're going to have, a, if you will, a mini-series within Luke on, on the kingdom as we look at a number of parables. Um, we see it's not just a Lucan theme. Um, it's something that we've seen in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians where Paul can speak about, in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, being called into God's kingdom and glory, and in 2 Thessalonians 1.5, being counted worthy of the kingdom. You remember this language, uh, that we are considered worthy, not not that, again, that, not that intrinsic worthiness that comes from within us, but a, a being counted, a crediting of, of, of worthiness, if you will, on account of what Christ has done for us and what he does in us through the Spirit. And nevertheless, there is a worthiness. Um, uh, it is, it, one must be worthy of the kingdom um, by God's grace and by his power. Um, 
time is growing short, so I won't look at a number of other texts uh, that we could look at. Uh, let me just propose a couple of theses to you uh, about the kingdom. Um, it's necessary to be born again in order to gain entrance into the kingdom. You can see that in John chapter 3, where Jesus speaks about uh, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of, of God. And it's also important to recognize that eternal life and uh, the kingdom of God are ideas or terms, um, phrases that are in interchangeable. I don't claim they're identical, but I do claim that they can be interchangeably used. We'll see that in Luke 18 um, when we, we consider the rich young ruler. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, then he goes his way sorrowful when Jesus tells him what he must do. And he says, uh, Jesus says in, in, in retrospect how hard it will be for uh, the uh, rich man or wealthy to, to see the kingdom of God. You can see that he's using that language of kingdom of God and eternal life in an interchangeable way, like flip sides of a coin. One who enters the kingdom has eternal life just as one who enters the kingdom is born again. And, um, and then last, uh, last little thesis here is that um, if you are in Christ, you are in his kingdom. If you're a believer in Christ, the kingdom is yours. But what's the, what, why is this all important? I think why is it necessary that we give a lot of attention to this? Besides the simple fact that it will be a main theme in Luke's gospel in the weeks to come. And I think it's because um, in our day, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the kingdom that, that has a, 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 a negative impact on the way we live in this world. Um, I've talked about that already not yet character of the kingdom. That comes from, uh, I think the term was coined by George Ladd in the 1900s, a, a great scholar who's very influential among evangelicals and Baptists. Um, the kingdom is already present as a reality, but the kingdom is not yet present in its fullness. We look to a day when Christ will come and he will, con uh, inaugura or he will bring uh, the kingdom that he has already inaugurated in his life and death and resurrection. The key rules presently now from the Father's right hand in heaven, but we look for that day when that, that reign will be visible and manifest in our midst in an earthly way. And there are Christ different Christians, uh, well-meaning, have different understandings of what that will look like and how we'll get there, whether we're looking for first a, 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 a thousand year a reign of Christ here on earth prior to the new creation, or whether all that comes to its fulfillment in the new creation itself. Um, uh, we can put aside those debates for now, but there's, at the end of the day, we're, we're looking at the same thing, and uh, we'll figure out who was uh, correct in their interpretation when he comes. But there are some misunderstandings that I think are more um, problematic, that, that, that are more troublesome. And one that's gaining a lot of credibility today is, um, is this idea, it's sometimes called post-millennialism, which is not in itself a terrible, uh, I mean, Jonathan Edwards was one, but uh, the, the, the modern iteration seems to be associated with people who, um, who want to, by our strength and by our power and by our agency as Christians, uh, achieve some kind of political kingdom that will approximate the kingdom of God in some way where we, we can institute Christian laws and Christianize the nations through force of arms and that kind of thing. And you'll, you know, they make reference to things like the coming Christian prince and things like that. And, um, and uh, it's actually grow, grow, growing in a great deal of popularity these days. 
in a lot of for a lot of reasons, but not least which because of um, the way in which our society is currently moving, it's such a uh, wicked, wicked, and 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 um, even uh, uh, in in a wicked way where we want to, where our society would um, even uh, take away freedoms and and um, and seek to uh, rule with an iron fist. People rightly and 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 reasonably are fearful of that, frustrated by that, angered by that what's going on in our schools and things like that, and thinking, well, what can we do as Christians as a church? And there's a, a large segment that seems to be growing larger and louder within Christianity that's pressing for views that, um, that we, you know, we are to, in some sense, bring in the kingdom through, um, through some kind of forceful means. Uh, I think that there's nowhere in Scripture that we see this kind of idea um, presented to us uh, even if if one uh, takes a what this this postmillennial kind of view, um, we still have to deal with the many admonitions that t- tell us to wait, to patiently endure, and to um, to focus you know focus on the proclamation of the gospel and fulfilling the great commission, not on political engagement and political ends and and uh, the use of force and that kind of thing. Um, so if you haven't heard that kind of thing, if 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 you've not caught wind of people pressing these ideas. Um, uh, well, good. Don't uh, stay off uh, social media, but uh, um, I, I think that you will hear more of it in the days to come. And just be prepared and, and know it's based on a, I think, a, a wrong understanding of the kingdom, kingdom uh, uh, understanding of the kingdom that's not rooted in what Scripture teaches us. We'll see that in Luke as it unfolds before us in the weeks to come. Um, all right, key points. Let me just summarize then finally. Key points is the kingdom is God's rule mediated through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is already present, but it's not yet present in its fullness. It comes by the power and agency of Christ at his coming, not by the power and agency of his church prior to his coming. Um, though it does come through the preaching of the gospel. Uh, it, does, it does grow and, 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 um, through the preaching of the gospel. We are brought into the kingdom uh, through that gospel, through faith, uh, the work of the Spirit in our lives. But we do not bring in the kingdom, as I've said. And our part in the growth of the kingdom is in gospel proclamation through the, in the context of the local church, not through um, political action, not through force of arms. And finally, uh, to come into the kingdom of God is to inherit, inherit eternal life, is to gain an inheritance that is of infinite, immeasurable worth, and um, it should be our chief uh, desire here on earth. Uh, Whatever we might lose in this life in terms of credibility before others, in terms of the favor of others, um, our reward is great. We can be sure in heaven. Uh, Even if we are poor here, the kingdom is ours, and so that should be our chief hope, is to be members of the kingdom through Christ, uh, through faith in him, and because of what he's done for us on the cross. Are there any questions or comments? Let's um, let's take some time to, to pray together.